So here we are. It is the last, um, the last sermon in this series about kings and kingdoms because next week, Scott Corkill is going to come and bring kind of an off-series message, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear that one, off-series. Yeah, you're off-brand a little bit, Scott. I'm really, yeah, he's got, I don't know what graphic we're going to use. We'll have to create something just special for Scott. I don't know. Um, he's going to talk about how faith goes further than, I'm going to get it wrong, grace goes further than, say it, say it, say it to me as I should have written it down, I apologize. Do you know what you're speaking on next week? <laughs> We've actually had this plan for months, I promise. I should have written this down. This is Grace goes further, in fact, even further than forgiveness. So I was like, say more about that. And uh, I just, like, we had a great chat about it. You're going to really appreciate what Scott's going to share next Sunday. So I want to be there for that. So this Sunday is the last one in our Kings and Kingdoms series. And I don't know how this worked out, but... I got a good king out of, there's a, there's a lot of bad kings, but I chose a good win. So let me start by asking you this. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Personally, for me, that's a hard no. Like, absolutely not. Whenever I watch a DC or Marvel movie, these folks are always fighting, fighting, fighting. That's all they do is fight, fight, fight. They keep getting smashed into things, and then they have to keep getting up and fighting on, and it seems extraordinarily exhausting to be a superhero, so I say no thank you. <laughs> and I also say the most disturbing thing when I watch these movies, as much as I know it's all CGI, I know it's all special effects, whatever, but why? Why are they always fighting the alien or monster or demigod or whatever in the middle of the downtown core and causing so much damage everywhere? I keep thinking, how hard is that going to be to clean up? Like, it's just a disaster every single time. And I say, no, thank you. What a mess. I do think Wonder Woman is kind of cool. Like, she's cool. Diana Prince is sometimes my screen name, like when we play games and stuff. But I don't actually want to be a superhero because it just seems like a lot. No, thank you. But I haven't, and I haven't done any polling on this, uh, maybe I should have, but I wonder if this is different for guys and for girls. I don't know if this is a, like a gender stereotype sort of situation. It definitely is true in my house. Um, here is Malachi at three years old, already dreaming of being a superhero. I think he'd been, we had adopted him just a few months earlier, and Rob had already indoctrinated him into Superman is the best of all the superheroes. <laughs> And uh, he was dreaming about having super strength like Superman. Like this came, by, came to him very naturally. Uh, my husband Rob has told me many times, many times in our marriage, we've been married 21 years, how often he has dreams that he is like fighting off bad guys and winning. Like in war or like as a superhero or whatever. He told me it's not quite like this, but I'll say it like it's, it's like, it's like when you, in your dreams you get plugged into the Matrix and suddenly you know Kung Fu. Like... It's like, it's like Rob dreams like that. And I've, I've heard from some men that this is a common thing. Like, of course you can. Is this true? Guys, is this just Rob? If it's just Rob, you guys have an intervention afterwards, I guess. All, all, it's, like, it's like for Rob would say it like this. Like all of the action movies he's ever watched, which is a lot, he has internalized this thought. I could do that if I needed to. You know, just like if I had to, if I had to. When we lived in Edmonton, uh, Rob was a junior high youth pastor. He, um, so they had, they had tons of, of community kids. Those kids from all kinds of different backgrounds. And one day he found a police baton that had been stashed behind some bushes right by the side door of the church. 
And he was like, nice. So, of course, he confiscated it. Never gave it back to the police, of course. We just, it's still in his bedside table to this day. Uh, I don't know if that, I don't know if I didn't get him in trouble, but. Uh, and, and not long after he, so he loved it, right? He was like, he's like, it like extends. And he's like, this is amazing. So he just has, he's just had it all of these years. That was a long time ago. And not long after he found this baton and brought it home and put it in his bedside table, um, then we were, it was like late one night, maybe 11 o'clock at night, and there was gunshots outside of our door. There was two cars that were racing down our little subdivision street. It was like, it's, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a busy street. Chasing, one car was chasing the other and shooting at it in front of our house. And I, I was, had just gone to bed and I was like, <gasps> and I'm like, I'm like trying to hit the floor. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, I was like, Rob, Rob. And he, I think he was in the living room or something. I was like, did you hear the gunshots? There's gunshots. And he was like, he comes upstairs. He grabs his police baton. And he goes out the front door. <laughs> and I was like, what are you going to do? I don't know if he thinks it's a lightsaber. He's going to deflect bullets. Like, I don't know what. He laughs. I was telling him, he's like, I know, I know what story you're going to tell. <laughs> and I, he's like, he doesn't know. He, doesn't, he didn't know what he was going to do with it. But that was his one weapon that he had. And he's like, nothing's coming into this house to get my family. Like, it's like, so I, I suspect that my husband maybe thinks inside he really could be an action movie hero. Or at least if he could, he'd jump at the chance to try. Uh, and I, re- I respect that a lot because I was, I had hit the deck. And I'm like, where are the children? Get low. Like, I don't know. And Rob's out in the front yard like this. Like, no, I'm not joking. He's like, And now, and I, I don't know, I, I won't say, we were totally fine after that incident, so I don't know, maybe you did protect us from, I don't know what. So Rob and I are very different in that way, maybe it's men and women, maybe it's personality, I don't know. But one thing is true for both of us, even though we have different views on this particular thing, both of us want to be heroes to our kids in different ways. We want to be heroes to one another, we want to be a hero to our friends, we want to be uh, the one who helps, the one who comes alongside and comes through in a pinch, the one who stands up for what's right and fights for it for the people we love. There are probably in your life people that you feel that way about too, right? And that's not to say that we feel necessarily capable of that or powerful enough or confident enough to do that, but we do want to do that. We do want to protect the ones that we love, don't we? And the last king that we're looking at in this series was so remarkable in his decisions and his actions that without any superpowers at all, he protected a whole generation. He found a way to do just what we've been talking about. And here's the spoiler. Here's the end point. We have the ability to do that exact same thing. We're talking about King Josiah this morning. Josiah's grandpa, here's what you should know about him to start. Josiah's grandpa was a maniac like an actual maniac. He had a reign of terror over Judah that lasted 55 years. 2 Kings 21.16 says, Moreover, Manasseh, so Josiah's grandpa, also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Can you imagine that being your grandpa? And then Josiah's dad, Amon, He was young when Josiah was born, very young. And and if the timeline matches up the way we think it does here, Ammon was just a teenager when Josiah was born, and he became king at age 22. Unfortunately, 
It was just as bad with Josiah's dad as it was with Ammon's dad, Manasseh. 2 Kings 21 says, Ammon did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping idols, the idols his father had worshipped and bowing down to them. His officials, Ammon's officials, assassinated him two years later. And then they made his son, Josiah, the eight-year-old, the new king. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. And here's what's crazy about Josiah is that his reign was prophesied 300 years earlier. That's the stuff of movies, right? There's always a prophecy about the hero, right? But this is like actually happened for real in real life. In 1 Kings 13, so we're in 2 Kings reading about Josiah. So this is all the way back in 1 Kings 300 years earlier. 1 Kings 13 says, By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, by the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. And this is literally exactly what happened when Josiah became king. Not, not of course, as an eight-year-old, but uh, soon after. So you might ask yourself, well, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like they, you know, he, whatever. Ammon named his son Josiah and forced this outcome? I don't think so. Because there were, like I said, 300 years between this prophecy and this king who named his son Josiah. And 300 years were mostly evil kings, as we've been hearing about in this series. And almost no one cared about the word of the Lord. And they certainly weren't looking to cooperate, cooperate with the promise uh, that pagan altars would be taken down and desecrated because they were worshiping on them almost this entire time with a few exceptions, some good kings coming through the mix. And I'll tell you for certain that Josiah did not know what was prophesied about him at all. So no one had told him. We find, he finds out later. But as the story of his life unfolds, we see, as 2 Kings 22 says, that neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. When you think about his family heritage, the little that we know is so awful. And this is the story of Josiah. Hundreds of years of idol worship, of bloodshed, of evil, that had been led by the kings of Judah and Israel, Josiah's story is nothing but remarkable. To understand what happens in 2 Kings 22 and 23, where you'll get a great story of Josiah, we're going to read a parallel story. If you don't know, Chronicles tells a lot of the same stories, just from a different point of view. So First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, if you're reading through those in your Bible, and you go, wait, you get to Chronicles, you're like, wait, these stories are familiar. That's correct. It's the same stories told from a different perspective. And sometimes they give different details. So we're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Go ahead and turn there with me. Of course, it's loaded up for you in the Bible app under more and then events. Uh, you can find this loaded. You can take notes there. You can save that. But let's read a, a little selection here from 2 Chronicles chapter 34. It's going to give us some details about what happened in the life of King Josiah, starting at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. 
He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in, in, in ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. He went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Skip with me to verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. And then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything you have committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and the workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the Lord, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Achaim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Azahiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with what, all that is written in this book. That's an intense thing for a young man to learn and to do and to act upon. So the timeline, if you're reading the same story in 2 Kings 22 and 23, it stacks up like this with chronicles to help us fill in some of the blanks. Josiah says, we need to repair the temple. It's in disrepair. Let's get some money together and let's get that going. So you read how that's happening. And as that's happening, they discover the book of the law. So somehow Josiah had, had wanted to pursue God, had been doing all of these things, but actually didn't know even that the book of the law existed, had never read from it. It wasn't part of their, even though it was absolutely part of their culture, it wasn't part of their culture anymore. It hadn't been read, it hadn't been seen, it had been hidden. And when the law is read, Josiah just has this deep remorse, immediately recognizing how far away from what God had called him to that they had, be, had, they had gone. So he sends Hilkiah, the high priest, to inquire of the Lord. And the word of the Lord, the, the prophetic word, is given through a prophetess named Huldah. And, he, and we're going to read that one in just a second. He hears the, the prophetic word from her, and then he renews, Josiah renews the covenant that God had made with the people. He comes, brings the whole country back to God, and he purifies everything again for worship the way that the law had told them to. And they celebrate the Passover. And if you know about the, the Jewish tradition, this is such an important, such an important celebration in the Jewish culture. The passing over 
of death from those who had the blood on the doorposts. This is the, about the e Egyptian uh, exile from, from Egypt. It was the first time in, in probably 400 years, it looks like, from what we understand in Scripture, 400 years that they had celebrated the Passover according to the book of the law, the, the way that it was prescribed. And then Josiah goes through and, and does further reforms, and he brings everything into alignment with the law. And of course, I, maybe it sounds simple that he went through the land and was smashing Asherah poles and everything that was, that was dedicated to uh, worshiping Baal and, and all of, the, all of those uh, idol worship things. But you can imagine, people's religion is a big deal to them. So when he started to go through and say, you can't do that anymore, you, can't, you can imagine the kind of wrath people felt toward him. You can imagine the kind of heat he took for that, and he did it anyway. What an incredible story. In chapter uh, 22, 2 Kings 22, 19 and 20, this is what the prophetess had prophesied about this when, when he, we, they went to inquire of the Lord. Oh, my goodness, we could, I could see we're so far off the mark here. What do we do? She said, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm going to bring on this place. You see, by that time in Israel's history, uh, the, the king, right after King Solomon, the kingdom was divided. It was divided. In, there's 12 tribes, and 10 of them, the southern tribes, uh, became known as Israel. So if you're reading through Kings and Chronicles, you'll see kings of Israel and kings of Judah. So 10 tribes uh, were the southern kingdoms, the, the kingdom of Israel. And two tribes, uh, which were Judah and uh, Benjamin, became the kingdom of Judah. So this is, we're talking about the kingdom of of Judah when we're talking about King Josiah. Because Israel at this time, the king of the southern kingdom, had already been exiled to Assyria because of that, their judgment from God had already come. There, there was generations of rebellion against God and some of the stuff we've already been reading about. And only Judah, these two northern tribes, only Judah was left in the promised land. But Judah's time was also coming. Judah's time for judgment to face the music for their like hundreds of years of rebellion and, and evil and all of the things that had, had happened. And God knew that Judah's time was coming because God had a plan that was being executed. But unfortunate, And unfortunately, if you keep reading, Josiah's son Jehoahaz and his grandson, grandson Jeho Jehoiakim did evil. And then God's final plan of judgment for them to exile them to Babylon was carried out for Judah but not during Josiah's time. Josiah's pursuit of God and his repentance and his commitment to follow the law with all of his heart literally protected a generation from the coming judgment. Because of his faithfulness, the kingdom of Judah enjoyed peace and prosperity. And most importantly, in his time, they were reconciled with their God. And I always wonder when I read this story, maybe this thought crossed your mind as well, how did this happen? Why is it that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David? Why did he do that? What catalyzed a 16-year-old coming from that family tradition to look for God? 
I literally have no idea. I wish that the, <laughs> the scholars had figured it and I could tell you. I don't actually know. Scripture doesn't tell us why. Perhaps Hilkiah was a mentor to him and caused him, because he was such a young king, he would have had advisors, adults, who were helping him and telling him what to do. And perhaps he, he trusted and listened to Hilkiah, the, the priest, and, and uh, it caused him to want to learn more about God because of that influence on his life. That's very possible. It mentions, uh, as it does with a lot of the kings, who his mother was. Perhaps his mom, Jedidah, came from a family who still served the Lord because there was always a remnant who served the Lord. It's possible. But what we do know is that, like the kings before him, he had to make a choice about how he was going to lead. He didn't, he didn't choose to be the king's son. He didn't choose to be the heir to the throne. But when the crown was given to him, him, like everyone before him, had a choice of how they were going to lead. And he chose to seek Yahweh, the God of his ancestors. I read through this once in, in one of the, my readings through this. Um, I, I wrote in the margin of my study Bible, came across it, of course, as I was working on this message. It said, it takes one person to repent, and it can hold off generations of evil. Because it occurred to me just what that would be like to draw a line in the sand for 16-year-old Josiah. After what I just told you about, forget about the hundreds of years of kings, what about his, his grandpa and his dad? And because of his decision, what God needed to do and, and, and the judgment that needed to come was literally held off for a generation. It's incredible. It's sobering. But it's also incredibly encouraging, and I hope you can hear that in this story. We hear a lot about victimhood and trauma uh, these days. Just you hear it kind of everywhere in a lot of different contexts and conversations. And in some ways, I actually think that that's a really good thing. Because if we ignore oppression, if we ignore uh, those who are victims in our society, it gives license for oppression to continue. So we need to call those things out for what they are. And also when it comes to trauma, if, if we bury painful things in our lives, then we become captive to those painful things. And so we need to recognize, talk about, and unearth the trauma that we may have experienced in our lives. So I don't think it's a necessarily a bad thing. But listen, Christ follower. To believe that these things, whether you have experienced oppression, whether you've experienced trauma, whatever it is from your past, to believe that those things are more powerful than the Holy Spirit's transformation in your life is a mistake. To resign yourself to your past is to align yourself with unbelief. And here's what I mean by that. This faith of ours, this faith that we have in Jesus is not a la carte. This is annoying to me. I know I'm guilty of it. We all are in some way, shape, or form. But I, am, I, I work very hard to make sure this is not true of me. Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, show me. That our faith is not a la carte. Like, we, can't just, we don't just pick and choose the pieces that work in our lives. Do you know what I'm saying? We choose the whole gospel. We, uh, we, we learn all about Jesus, not just the things that we think are comfortable or easy or that we like or that, we, that make it so that we don't have to deal with other things. We can't say something like, sure, Jesus can forgive my sins by dying on the cross for me and rising again on the third day. Yay, I love that part of the story. But he can't change this. He can't heal this. He can't redeem the pain of my childhood. He can't overcome or help me or redeem the, the consequences of my decisions. 
I'm super glad my sins are forgiven, but this stuff's hard. <laughs> Think about the logic there, okay? Dying and rising in the third day for all of humanity for all of time, no problem. But this pain I carry is too hard. Like it's a ridiculous thought, right? It's a ridiculous thought. But so often we a la carte, we just pick and choose the things that we think that Jesus is capable of. And I want us to be careful. I want us to be careful. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 says, this is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Yeah, you're hearing that correctly. The same power that you are trusting in to forgive, you, to forgive your sins is the same power that frees you up to live a transformed life. And I just want to say this so I don't have to say it ten other times in this message, and you'll just allow this to be an umbrella. I recognize how difficult it is to deal with some of these things in our lives. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing that. I'm not minimizing that. But what I'm saying is, are we taking these things in our lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform them, or are we holding on to them and deciding that Jesus can't touch them? That's what I'm saying to you. Are we actively pursuing a place where the Holy Spirit can do a work in our lives, or are we holding on to some things and just saying yes to the gospel peace, but no thank you to the rest of it, okay? I'm saying this is difficult, and I get it, and sometimes it takes years, and sometimes it takes help, and all of those things, but I will tell you, we cannot say yes and then say no. This is the gospel that we have learned, that we have accepted, okay? This is what I'm saying to you. So you're good? We're good? This is hard. I'm even here. I've been on a walk through that with you. I'm working through some stuff in my own life here too, but I want to be moving forward in that area of my life. In another place, Paul's writing to the Galatians, and he's writing in the context of not being a slave to the law. And so for our uh, purposes here, like that old way of thinking, the old way of behaving, the old things in our lives, and not being a slave to those things and thinking that it can only be one way, thinking that some of the things you do can save you instead of just the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And Paul writes this, this to the Galatians. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 1. He says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, there's a distinction, like we used to sing, I found Jesus, right? And people were like, well, actually, Jesus found you, but whatever, same, okay, same idea here, right? Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 5.1 says, for it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Josiah had every reason to go with what he knew, to repeat the patterns that had been shown to him, to make decisions out of his pain. And it, I mean, the scripture does not go into this. I want you to imagine what that eight-year-old would have seen in his short life. Can you imagine what his life would have been like, what the country was like, what kinds of things he had seen? He, he, had, he had to make a decision that he wasn't going to repeat patterns based on fear. 
if you read through Kings and Chronicles, being a king was a super dangerous profession. Some of them lasted two months. Like, people were being assassinated all the time. Like, and so I, don't, I can't imagine the kind of fear that you would be so tempted to live with. And now Josiah decides, I'm going to go make everybody mad and take away their idols. He made some very specific choices to not repeat the patterns that, of, that he had been shown, not to make decisions from his pain or from fear. He chose to turn to God with his whole heart. And the consequence was incredible. He protected a generation from the judgment that was coming by walking in that incredible faith. I mentioned this already, but you might expect, of course, like we love the perfect ending, but that Josiah's reforms would change the future for Judah, but instead they disappear as soon as he dies, unfortunately. That's the sad part of the story. His reign becomes almost like the first stage of the exile. It's like a last-ditch effort to show that Judah will not turn back to God for good. And so God brings the judgment that needs to come. In the margin of my study Bible, in this part I wrote, sometimes others will choose or have consequences that are beyond the example that you set. You can't choose for other people. You can't decide what your kids are going to do with Christ. What you can decide is what you are going to do with your life and how you are going to influence the next generation for him. So this all reads to me like an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is that there is power in a life surrendered to Christ. So much power. Power to break free from the past. Power to to put off the sin that so easily entangles, as Hebrews 12 says. There's power to lead your own life towards true transformation because the Holy Spirit is working in you as a believer in Christ. There is power to lead our families in a way that covers our spouses and covers our children in the blessing and the faithfulness of God because of the choices that we make to steadfastly follow him. That's such an encouragement because we see this in Scripture. There's a warning, of course, like we just talked about. The warning, of course, is that still every person needs to make their own decision. So if you grew up under, I mean, I was at a memorial service yesterday for a woman of God. And all we talked about was her legacy of faith and how it spilled over into the next generation and the next generation. So you, you have the ability to do that. But I'll tell you, Just because your grandma prayed for you doesn't mean that you don't need to know Jesus for yourself. So there's a warning in there. There's a warning in there to make sure that your relationship with Christ sets up your family and the next generation for blessing in favor of the faithfulness of God in you. So the question just always comes off scripture. I always, when I'm ever reading scriptures, it's always just questions, questions. What will I do? What will I do with what I'm reading? Will you run towards God with your whole heart, willingly tearing down anything that doesn't please him? That's what Josiah showed us. Will you stand firm and watch his faithfulness at work for your life, for your spouse, for your children, for the people that in your life that you have influence over? And when you say it like that, will I do that? Will I, will I stand up to that? The answer is like, Duh, like, yes, like, I've, that's what I want. I want, I love that picture. I love, I love that for me. <laughs> I love that for my husband. I love that for my kids. I love that for our church. So is that what I'm going to choose this day and tomorrow? 
and Tuesday and Wednesday. Is that what I'm going to do? I, I thought about how to say this. I haven't done this, this for a while, but I'm going, to, I'm going to say it to you like this in a series of affirmations. I'm going to say it collectively too because I know that we have individual decisions to make as Christ followers. We do. I, my faith isn't going to save you. Only you knowing Jesus is, is going to do that for you. But we also do not do this faith by ourselves. So I'm going to use the collective we and tell you that for my life and as, as I worship and serve alongside of each of you, I want to be part of this kind of we. I want to I have these kinds of affirmations be true of our church and our church family so that we can, uh, we can influence the world for Christ. We will not be those who shrink back, but we will run after God with all of our hearts. We will not hold anything back, but we will give him everything and anything. We'll give him all of it, past, present, and future. We will courageously allow the Holy Spirit to transform our pain for his good and his glory and trust him with it. We will teach our children about the faithfulness of God and we will model his grace daily. We will stay alert to the schemes of the enemy who wants to keep us in bondage and we will say, no thank you. That's not in there. That was just for me now. No thank you. We will say, you can say it like that, it's okay. We will not pick and choose the gospel that we like, but believe fully in the extraordinary power of Christ in our lives and through us. And as far as it depends on us, we will pursue God and we will protect the generation under our care. If that is your heart, would you just say amen? amen. Matt, you can come. Matt and Rob. I was going to say worship team. And I was just going to say Matt, and I realized that's just you guys. You see, the thing is, no matter how good a king is, it's not enough. Josiah did a remarkable thing, and his legacy teaches us that we have so much influence when we are serving wholeheartedly our God. When we are fully pursuing Christ, what God can do in and through our lives is remarkable. But even that, for Josiah, he did so much good, but it wasn't enough because he was only one man. And what we learned actually through all of the kings, most of them were terrible as we learned through this series. What we actually needed, especially as you read through the Old Testament here, what was actually needed while well, Josiah did incredible things, what we needed was needed all along was a king of kings who would rule in perfection and holiness. What Josiah could never have done on his own, Jesus came and accomplished for us. And not only that, but he's offering us the same power through his finished work on the cross. Kings points us to some great life lessons, some things that we need to know about pursuing God and, and about keeping our hearts true and about listening to him and not rejecting what he's called us to. And we learn all of those lessons, but don't ever forget that the, the book of Kings also points us to the fact that we need a real king who's going to come and make everything new 
who's going to rule perfectly. And so we still, we still set our hearts. We learn and we, and we hear from the scriptures and the Holy Spirit speaks to us even as we set our focus and attention on the fact that one day Jesus is going to set up his kingdom forever. We're just, he's done the work. We're just waiting for the fulfillment of all of these promises now. Josiah didn't know that that was even going to be a thing. I'm sure it would have excited him because he was pursuing God with all of his heart. So knowing all of these things and seeing this example and knowing what Jesus has done, the offer is for us that will we accept what the true King of Kings has done for us and pursue him with all of our lives? Will we stand firm and be like Josiah and live in his faithfulness and, 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 and live under his blessing and live in obedience to Christ? Will we give him all of the parts of our lives and believe his, in his extraordinary power to set us free? Will we invite the Holy Spirit to point out those things in our lives? I, I prayed that before I started this morning, which is, Lord, I know it's uncomfortable. We still say yes. We still say yes.